Intersection is brought to you by Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Learn more at touchpoint.health. When I go to someone's Instagram profile, it says social media influencer. I'm, I almost vomit in my mouth. I just think it's weird. Welcome to Intersection. I am Bobby Ratu, storyteller. I have been so excited to have this wonderful person on this podcast. She is super awesome, but I would love for you to share your greatest passion. Without question, my greatest passion, I hope I don't choke up, is helping women see the greater person that is inside of themselves that they're probably hiding because they don't believe in and helping them uncover their absolute greatest potential and just take the leap and soar with it. Whether it's fitness, career, relationships, we started out as fitness, but it's become more around business. I just want to see women come out of their shell and do things they never thought they could do and then inspire others to do the same. That's my passion. My name is Kelly Alexa. I am the CEO and founder of Fitfluential, and I am now the CEO and founder of two new businesses, Socially Fit Services, which is a digital social media and influencer consulting agency here in Austin, Texas for the moment, soon to be moving to San Antonio. And I'm also the creator of a brand new sales training and business training course for women called The Opposite of Nice Isn't Nasty. And I'm thrilled about it. And it kind of goes back to my passion, which is helping women come out of their shell and do great things. What does it mean to be a social media influencer? This is a question many of us old school social media pioneers toss around while giggling under our breath. I guess it means you have to have more than 10,000 followers on the latest social media outlet. But seriously, what is a social media influencer? I want you to meet Kelly Alexa. Kelly is the founder of Fitfluential, a nationwide network of highly influential fitness and health and wellness fanatics sharing their journey online via social media. She has also launched Socially Fit Services with the goal to meet the needs of businesses and individuals struggling with digital, social, and influencer marketing. She is probably the first true social media influencer, starting her journey in 2007 with a $600 camcorder and a YouTube channel. She had zero strategy and just put videos up of her ramble-on-a-thons daily, and that's just it. No editing, no calls to action, no fancy graphics. Just Kelly, sweaty after a workout, sharing her ups and downs. Suddenly, she had big brands reaching out to work with her as an ambassador, including Sears, Polar Heart Rate Monitors, Nike, even Ford with the Ford Fiesta movement. From losing her job to working with big brands because of a camcorder and a YouTube channel, Kelly shares her story as one of the first true social media influencers. What was it like losing your job during that time period? I don't think I, I had no idea that it was going to be anything more than a hiccup because I had certainly had situations where, you know, when you're in sales, um, I think many salespeople always have this attitude of, well, there's always going to be a sales job somewhere. And, and back to what you said, you know, I got out of college at that time and 
what you would do when you got out of college is you would just get a job. You didn't pursue your passion. You just got a job. And I would, you know, my first job was in the hotel space. My second job was in the financial services industry. And then my third job and several after that were in real estate technology. So none of those things were things that lit my fire that I had a passion for. I did really great in them. And I was a, what people said, I was a natural born salesperson. But when my boss emailed me, it was October 30th of 2008. And I remember his very words. He said, Kelly, um, did you get the email from you know the company? I said, no, what are you talking about? He goes, well, your last paycheck was your last paycheck. They've gone out of business. They've declared bankruptcy. I hope you submitted all of your previous expenses. That was like how I found out about it. And truth be told, they were they shut the doors. Nobody could get a hold of anybody. The CEO bailed. The COO bailed. We all had American Express cards that apparently they hadn't been paying for six to nine months. And American Express came out after all of us. Um, and you know, apparently the way that we'd signed up for those corporate cards, we were liable. Um, it was not pretty. But I think the biggest wake-up call for me was I started applying for jobs, assuming I'd get another job in two or three weeks. And 13 months later, I still didn't have a job. It was the most humbling, trying time of my life back then. There were others to come, but that was that was the biggest challenge. And it was a wake-up call. I remember during that time period um, in February of 08 as well for me, um, the company I was working for shut its doors. And the I was... Uh, working directly under the CEO as he was fundraising, doing all the capital work. And I found out before everybody else found out, he called me the day I closed my house and said, I'm closing the doors the next day. But I wanted to tell you in person because I'll help you figure out what's your next step. And that was when I really jumped onto social and I think a lot of it was just to build connections and fascinated with this new space. But what I think is fascinating about your story, how many of us have kind of paralleled, is that we went through this trial period of this is a new space to connect with people that were going through cer- similar circumstances. Would you agree at that time period? Yeah. Like Absolutely. we're all in transition and we just wanted to meet people, you know, to make connections. Yeah. And the beautiful thing is people, it seemed, and it, well, it is, it it wasn't just, it was a fairy tale, but we were, we were, um, I was not connecting with people with an agenda. On the other hand, there was a point when, um, there, there was something where being on Twitter, I just, I, I had this gut feeling that social media and, and again, just try to put yourself back. This was before Instagram. This was really before like, you know, some of the, the, platforms that have risen and fallen like vine you know this was in the early days i just knew that this was going to be something that wasn't going away and so when i connected with people like yourself and olivier and christy colvin and david armano and gary v you know I, I knew that i had a lot to learn from them and i had never thought about you know pr advertising marketing like that space and now that is a, a huge part of what I do. And it's been like getting my MBA just for, since that time till now. And it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing thing. But yeah, I found that everyone I connected with, I'm sure you'd see this too. All these people got on Twitter and sometimes it, they wouldn't put in their title who they were. And so <laughs> it allowed you, there was, there was this animosity, right? And I didn't know that I was engaging with some really big deal people in the business space. And I'm, it's probably good that I didn't because I always chose to have the attitude that everyone is 
as equally as important as the other. And I treated everybody the same. And sometimes I would find myself like, wow, I've been talking to, you know, the senior vice president of digital AT&T or, and I, I wouldn't find out till later, but they'd come up to me and then they'd, you know, ask for a business meeting. It was wonderful. So it was, it was just a completely different environment. Do you feel like social at that time kind of helped you find your voice in this new entrepreneurial space? Without question. With you talking about the need to empower women to find their voice, you had to find your voice first, right? What was that like? And how did that propel through this entrepreneurial period? And uh, where did you start finding that comfort when you're going out there and putting yourself out there? Just as I was thinking of answering you, it came to me. And I, I certainly didn't realize it at the time. But I think before that, you know, when I was working in corporate America, <clears throat> I had my my corporate Kelly um, personality. And that was the girl that followed all the rules, wore the right. I, I mean, I still remember getting my first job and being told things like, don't wear your heels too high. Don't ever wear a low cut shirt. You know, you have to dress a certain way. Don't ask for days off. Don't do this. Follow all these obscure rules. And I was a rule follower. I'm a people pleaser at heart. And so I had my corporate life when, and then my private life. And remember I said earlier in the, in the interview, I said, when I started blogging on the side, I, I didn't want my boss or anybody. It wasn't like I was putting up anything provocative, but it was my fitness life. It was me being wild and crazy Kelly personality and talking about how I love this new Tupac song that was out. And those were things I didn't feel I could talk about in the corporate environment. I had to be corporate Kelly. And so in this social media space, suddenly those two people merged and it was okay to really be fully myself and to be somebody who's really smart at business. I kind of feel like there's a working girl quote coming up here, um, but to be somebody who can be fun and vivacious and likes Nickelback, but also is really good at sales and driving revenue and talking about marketing. And those two people can coexist. It doesn't have to be mutually exclusive that fun Kelly's over there. And the person that talks about, you know, the shoes that she loves and the makeup that she loves. And then over here, it's Business Kelly, who has a plain, boring suit and low-heeled shoes. I began to merge and be a lot more comfortable with who I am and not trying to fit into somebody else's mold. I started making my own mold. That sounds like a bumper sticker, but it's true. When did you start getting the return on your investment? When you started realizing, I could make a passionate career behind using this outlet as a way to connect? The truth is, um, I would be completely dishonest with you if I told you that in the early days, I thought I could make a living out of this. I knew that I was onto something, but that goes back to why I've started my sales and business training course for women, because my whole thought line back then was, how can I get into a job as soon as possible to get secure income? Because the truth is, whether it was conscious or not, I didn't believe enough in myself um, to, to, to not have the quote unquote stable paycheck to, to survive. I thought everything revolved around, you know, ha working for the man and, and working for somebody else. So at no time did I think, oh, I should take this and run with it. I knew I should keep doing it because it was something I could leverage. But the second in 2009, when I finally did get a J-O-B, I was rejoicing because I had healthcare and I had a, a corporate credit card and this, you know, that, that comfort zone was back and I kept doing it. And I, I knew it was something 
because it changed the course of my career. It changed me from just having a sales job for any company selling anything to now I'm an expert. And, and then I became a thought leader. And then, and these were other people's words. They said, oh, she's an expert in fitness. Oh, she's a thought leader. Oh, she's the, the one to go to, to find fitness people. And I, it just, it, it changed my career path, but I truthfully did not think at that time I could do anything on my own. It took founding my own company and then really kind of going through some very tough times with that company that's when I saw my potential. That's when I became the person I am now where I'm starting two new solo businesses from scratch. And I have all the confidence in the world that they'll be explosively successful, probably much more so than my first venture with Fitfluential. Talk about Fitfluential and where that came from and the beginnings of that company. So as you know, I've been um, blogging since 2007. So that probably was maybe the embryonic phases of, of Fitfluential. Um, but I didn't know it at the time I was making those connections. But when I got the job, I, I got a job at a social media agency based in DC in 2009. And I worked there until I quit to run Fitfluential full-time. The truth of the matter is um, I started this company because I hated my job. Um, here I had, had been unemployed for 13 months. I get this job and my boss, Jack, was at, at that time, I said he was just the worst boss I'd ever had. Now, I can share that now because he and I are friends. He's one of my greatest business advisors. But at the time, the truth is, I didn't like him because he micromanaged me. I didn't like him because he was a numbers guy and I wanted to just be given all the freedom in the world. That's what all my old bosses did. I wanted to be given all the freedom in the world and he didn't give me that and he held me accountable. And I was a spoiled um, corporate saleswoman who was like, why are you in my flow, Jack? <laughs> and I just, you know, he, he, he was just different. We were oil and water and um, I was unhappy. And I remember that in the second year I was there, I started interviewing and I had several outstanding big companies. Um, I was interviewing with GNC. I was interviewing with Beachbody. I was interviewing with Sears Fit Studio. All these companies I did some social media work for as an influencer. Then, so again, that shows you how social became a stepping stone for me. Um, it allowed me to show both both sides of what I could bring to the table, right? So here I was interviewing with these great companies for the ability to run their social media for them, and nothing panned out. And I remember getting to the end of um, that, that one year. So 2010, and I saw that I was becoming that person that complained about her job all the time. And I didn't want to be that person. And I said to myself at the end of 2010, you need to do something. You can't keep being that person that bitches. You can't, you, you've got to, you're not that negative person, do something. And I'm like, I started researching and I started, you know, talking to another blog friend. Um, I said, I think that we should, you know, start a fitness club. And, and I remember saying to our friend, David Armano, who's always been a business advisor for me. I called him, I was going tanning one day. I called him from the parking lot and I said, I'm, I'm thinking of like putting together a fitness network for, for like a, a club. And, and then, and he didn't even let me finish what I was saying. He's like, Kelly, you're already the go-to person in the industry for when people need fitness YouTubers or fitness bloggers or health and wellness people. He's like, do it. My agency will give you business. And then I talked to Adam Keats at Weber Shanwick and he said the same thing. And then I talked to several other people in the space and they're like, do it. And I reached out to my blogger friend. I had 
no investors, no business plan, no idea how to become profitable, no, really no idea, even what, if somebody asked me for my elevator pitch, I would have said, I need some tequila. I have no idea what my elevator pitch is. I just, I I just really, I knew that I was going to bring together these fitness people. I knew in the fitness space, there were, there was no one place for all fitness passions. Um, and I, I put together the the website, fitfluential.com. My, my partner at the time was a blogger I'd known for like two months. And that's not a reflection of her. That's a reflection of how naive I was. I gave her 50% of the company and, and I was like, let's, let's go for it. So we put the website up in April, 2011. And what I had told myself was I'm going to keep working this day job and I'm going to go start recruiting bloggers. And, you know, we'll be the first non-mommy blogger network because everything was mommy blogger networks back then. And every brand was like, if you're a mom, you're a goddess. And that's still can be true, but there were no niche markets, um, or, or networks. So I figured it would take me two years to get 150 bloggers because I was going to be doing it on the side. And I thought if I get 150 bloggers, that's a good enough club. And then I can quit my job. I'll, I'll work at Starbucks or I'll become a personal trainer and I'll do these things on the side. That, that was how high I was aiming. I'm serious, Bobby. What happened instead is the website went up April, 2011 after my birthday I quit my job August 8th of 2011 because we had 75 bloggers already that we'd hand recruited. We were reaching collectively 5 million people a month. I remember thinking that was the bee's knees. And we had RFPs coming in on the website and I had no idea what my pricing was, no idea. Um, People were asking about ads for the website, no idea how to give them ads. Um, I, I just had no employees, no business plan, no money, no idea what I was doing. My dad about had a heart attack when I quit my job. He's like, What's wrong with you? But I quit my job. I think we took on a, I I convinced two people to work for me for free. Um, I don't know how I did that. I, maybe I gave them something that, you know, I, a car, I'm not quite sure, but um, convinced them to work for us. We got our first Brita was our first client for $500. And then we brought on GNC for an annual retainer and we became profitable the first year. And we very quickly um, grew into a profitable seven-figure business that's been around now for seven years. And now we've got a network of 10,000 influencers. We've executed over 700 successful social media campaigns for Fortune 500 brands and small brands alike. Um, and and now we're you know transitioning the platform from more of a, uh, we, we typically were B2B, you know, more of an agency influencer network, you know, campaign kind of company. And now I'm really transitioning Fitfluential to serve our consumer audience and, and really taking those platforms by adding a podcast um, to serve the, co- the consumer community, because I want to do less, less, hey, these are cool tennis shoes to, hey, how can we help you balance your hormones and get better health? Like, that's what I'm passionate about. I don't, I don't want to do vitamin commercials anymore. You know, that's, that's, I'm, I'm done with that, but that's the story. Did I, did I answer the question? Long no, enough? that was awesome. And, and I, I want to follow up on something that you bring up that I think is a term that's now becoming overused. And I would love your feedback on this. Um, the idea of a social media influencer um, in the early days, it had one context. Now it has a different context. An example would be is uh, I was on a project about a month ago. And um, this person walked up to me and I said, hey, how are you doing? And uh, that person introduced himself. And 
right after that, they said, I'm a social media influencer. <laughs> and I giggled inside, but I did not show <laughs> I did not laugh. <laughs> and I la- and then I walked away and laughed, and people were wondering why I was laughing. And s- because I felt like the idea of an influencer, you don't need to introduce yourself as an influencer if you truly are an influencer. That makes sense. Exactly. Now a quick break to ask for your help. If you like Intersection, we would really appreciate you take a moment to leave us a review. Whether you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, please take a moment to leave a review. This is important because it helps others find our show. Thanks so much for your help. Now, let's return to the show. I would love for you to define what a social media influencer is from your context and what do you think it is today? Um, I agree with you. I think that's kind of like, um, hi, my name's Kelly Alexa and I'm pretty. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) it's just, it's, it, it really is kind of so much has changed. Um, and, and I saw the market change in 2015. I mean, you know, the truth is um, sometimes entrepreneurialism can be glorified and it's, I'm, I'm very proud of what I did, but I remember I stopped enjoying it um, right around the end of 2014, early 2015, the market changed. It stopped, it stopped being as fun. And, and really, if you think about it, think about how I said I started blogging, you know, back in the day, people started blogging. It was about friendships, even Twitter. You know, you, you got online and it's not to say like we're mother Teresa. When we got online, we were, we were, oh, we were so special and different. We were angels. That's not it at all. It's just when, when you realize that kids are going to college to become an influencer and that's again, to think that that's like your sole title. And one of my dear friends, her daughter uh, is in the fitness space and she and her boyfriend hired a full-time cameraman as if they are a reality show. And, and of course, they're, the rich daddy's paying for it to, to follow them around and just, they do photo shoots everywhere and their friends say, oh my God, every time we go out to eat, they have to stop and film that nobody wants to hang out with them because they, they're filming their entire lives. Um, obviously, it's a way that folks can become very successful. Some people have, look at the pioneer woman, you know, she was a blogger who ended up having, you know, a a great uh, audience. She parlayed that into a cookbook and now she has her own show on Food Network. That happened a lot in the food space. Um, But today's influencer, it's, it's sometimes to me can seem like it's a different version of a reality show and it's extreme. Um, I just think if that's your title, you're an influencer. You don't have a long history. You don't. You, you don't have a long future. That's not a viable way to make a living. To say I'm an influencer. Anyone can be influential. Anyone. It doesn't matter if you have five followers or if you have 500 followers or if you have five million. In fact, we all know the data is now supporting that the the micro influencer it, are those people that actually make an impact as far as moving product on social media. To me, 
back to what you said, like, uh, please kill me if anybody ever hears me say I'm a social media influencer. That's not a job. That's, that's like a description. Like I have brown hair. I, I have a red car. I influence people. Everybody does, whether you intentionally do it or not. Um, so I think it's kind of hokey to me. I, I, I just, I, I, I don't think that should be a job title. Um, the way that people typically in a business perspective define influencer is somebody who has followers, who's regularly putting out content. Um, but what's most telling to me is that what's what's most marked about what's changed in the influencer space is six or seven years ago, those that, folks that were blogging, and most people didn't say influencer back then, six or seven years ago, they would call you bloggers. And if you weren't a blogger, you weren't considered legit. Now you can be an influencer just on Instagram, yeah. right? You don't even need to have a website. Yep. Um, but but more of those people are, are, are realizing, you know, they need more spaces. What's interesting is bloggers and influencers have come to realize that, sure, I can make money working for a big fitness shoe company doing an ad for them. But I've really created this, this audience and I've created this amazing content. I put a lot of time and effort into my what I do, my craft, I'd rather make money with my stuff. And so to me, again, that's where I saw the difference, what was happening in in the marketplace, it was evolving, and less bloggers and influencers want to take that, um, you know, subway ad kind of opportunity, go out, take a picture of subway, and we all love subway, this is not a cut on them. But nobody wants to stop and interrupt their dialogue with their audience to do sponsor posts like they used to. No. And so what you see is the the people that are really good at their craft are charging extraordinarily high rates to work with brands. Um, and, and the people that, you know, are more, ex- it, it's, it's just changing that, that space. And I think it, it can be great. There are a lot of outstanding influencers out there who are doing great things and making great incomes and they take it very seriously and they have a staff and they're earning six, sometimes seven figures, but very few of them in my experience will say I'm an influencer. When I go to someone's Instagram profile, it says social media influencer. I'm, I almost vomit in my mouth. I just think it's weird. (laughs) Me too. What is your message? Not only to the women that are enlisting to be led by you through your services and through your blogs and through the things that you do. But what about the young women, the daughters of these women that are rising up to see a new societal change of voice? Talk about that a little bit. When I think of young women and and one of the uh, groups that we're uh, partnering with is this this young woman who was one of our earliest fitfluential ambassadors has founded a a network of she basically has chapters of women who are into fitness and wellness all over the country at different colleges and and I think of God, I think of myself when I was in college and I think of myself at my first jobs and and how I how I felt like I had to play by the rules and I didn't I never. I never enjoyed, I never got up and said, this is what I was called to do. There was just, I, I think our generation, Bobby, when we were, when we went to college, it was, you go to college and if you're a guy, you go to college, you get a job, you get a wife, you have kids and that's it. But it, it was never like follow your dream or find out what you really love. It was 
just get a job, provide for your family. And for women, you know, way back when it was just get married. Um, and, and now for women, or excuse me, back when, when we were in college, it was find something. I remember when I was in college, it was fashion merchandising. What is that? I don't even know what that is, but that was the major that every girl chose because we just wanted to work at the limited and get free clothes. But no, at no time until I moved to Texas from Chicago, did I ever think that I'm going to live where I want to live, that I'm going to do what I want to do, that I, that I could figure out how I want to spend my day. Like from a work perspective, no one thinks they can design their life. And it was such an awakening moment for me when I moved, when I picked up and moved everything, albeit under very shifty circumstances, but I, I moved from Chicago. I, I sold most of my stuff. I decided I was going to start fresh and I moved to Austin, Texas. And I, I had so many people ping me on social media, so many women and go, I wish I could do what you're doing. And I would say, why, why can't you? And they said, oh, well, uh, my family lives in Chicago or my family lives in Minneapolis or, well, I've always lived in Florida or, well, I've got this job. And I'm like, well, you know, you're not handcuffed to that job and you don't have to live where you're, you could move to San Francisco. No, it's too expensive. And I, and I just started having these conversations with people like, you know, you, you can do anything you want. Just stop ending the conversation at, oh, I could never do that. I could never own my own business. I'm not, women don't let themselves have that conversation. And I've started to see that more and more. They automatically have an answer that, that makes them play small. So for me, when I'm talking to younger women, I want them to absolutely believe that there is there are no limits to what you want to do. I love that entrepreneurialism is much more mainstream, if you will, because it certainly wasn't when I was when I was young. You never heard about anyone being an entrepreneur. I used to think if somebody introduced themselves to me as an entrepreneur, I'm like, you don't have a job. And I just thought that was an excuse for, oh, right, you're making up a company. Okay. It's so different now. And and I love that some women are, I mean, some of my best friends and uh, two of the ladies I'm in a mastermind group with are 27 and 32. And they have their own, they quit their jobs and they have their own home-based business. And they absolutely love it. They hustle their asses off, but they're doing great things. And, and that's to me, what what I'm determined to do with both my course and just my presence as much as I can on social or on podcasts like this is have women fundamentally understand that they are capable of so much more and that, you know what, if you want to have a corporate job, have at it. If you If that's what you like, it doesn't mean that you're not aiming high, but you deserve to do everything that you think you're capable of. If you work in corporate America and you think you should be the CMO, and just because you've only been there two years, don't tell yourself, oh, I can't do that. They only hire from within and you have to have an MBA. Ask for the job. And if you if you have a passion and you say, oh, I couldn't do that because I don't have a business plan. I haven't graduated from college. Start doing it on, on the side. Start going on YouTube. Start researching it. There are no limits. The only limits, and this is going to sound like a bumper sticker, but the only limits we have are ourselves. I was my own worst limit for most of my life. And I refuse to live by limits now. I'm 49 years old. I'm just getting started. That's amazing. I wish I could come over there to your where you are, if it's your apartment or your office, and start high-fiving and jumping around and screaming. Um, it's super <laughs> awesome. Um, one of the biggest last questions I want to ask you is, um, to the men of the world who are trying to learn how to embrace this movement of women that are mm. leading now 
And we want to be a part of it, but don't want to take the forefront, but want to, to be a part of this movement. How do we fit in to this? How do men um, fit in to this new space of women leadership in a way that not takes away from the equal playing field, but adds to it? That's such a great question, because I do think one of the um, unfortunate side effects that's come, up, come from you know, what started with the Me Too movement is that there are, and I, and I understand, I would, I would be that too. I, I've even seen some, maybe some melodramatic interviews with some guys that are like, you know, you can't say anything. I, I think I saw, it was on USA Today, it was an article about, you know, one company saying men are, are not allowed to go out with women, you know, on the road ever without the presence of other people. You know, it, it doesn't have to be that way. But on the other hand, I think if if all the men out there could understand, number one, this this isn't made up. You know, women have been dealing with a lot of shifty behavior, and and if it think of your think of your girlfriend or your wife or your daughter, and think about some of the things I've told you. Um, you know, I was on a business trip in Columbus, Ohio. I'll never forget. I went down to the bar. And, and, you know, I remember I felt uncomfortable being at the bar by myself, but I'm like, I'm going to order a steak. Um, I'm going to, you know, have some dinner and then I'm going to go up to my room. And there were three gentlemen, I use the term loosely sitting to the right of me. And, you know, they started, you know, talking to me, can I buy you a drink? I said, no, I'm just here for business. And I decided to just chat with them. Well, literally within five minutes of talking, these men were asking me about waxing my bikini line. And I'm, I remember looking at him going, you, you think that's okay. I mean, like a woman would never ask a man something so sexual and inappropriate and insulting, but that's the type of stuff that happened all the time. Um, and that that's why women would travel and, and feel like you had to hide out in your room. And, and, and so I think number one, for men to understand that the reason this is becoming is becoming a big deal is women feel like it's finally okay to not have to deal with that. It sucks to be scared when you travel. It sucks to feel like you have to hide in your room because you're going to deal with unwanted advances. It sucks to feel like, you know, you can't speak up because some other guy's going to interrupt you and then you don't have a seat at the table. So number one, just kind of understand the context that even if you have been a gentleman, even if you've always treated women with respect and wanted them to get ahead, there's a lot of people that haven't. And I would say number two, um, just be be humble enough to ask questions. You know, like if you don't, don't be the guy that, it's kind of like when, this is maybe a poor choice of, of, of an example. A lot of people, when they become diagnosed with cancer, they say that everyone gets scared to talk to them. Nobody knows what to say. If you're a gentleman out there and, and you wanna help become an advocate for this movement and help women advance, and you don't know what to say, just ask, you know, say, look, I really, I really want to help. And, and, and I don't, I want women to feel comfortable around me and I want to help. What do I do? You know, and, and ask, I mean, it's, it, it, that to me is the best thing that we can do is, is I don't want to have this, this movement separate men and women, but let's let the good ones come together. And then most importantly, I would say number three, is guys, if you see other men, whether they're in the presence of women or not, behaving inappropriately, call it out. Stand up to that shit. I mean, all of us should do that. Women should be doing the same thing when they see other women, you know, cutting down women because they're getting plastic surgery or cutting down women because they're in a fitness competition. Call that out. Men do the same thing. 
Those would be my top three. Kelly Alexa, you are by far the most awesome person. You, I just love your passion. Um, I love your uh, drive and I love your story. Uh, And thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing it with us today. Thank you so much. I honestly, I loved this talk and I love the fact that you and I, I I mean that we met on the Twitter and I feel like you're one of my, you're one of my dearest friends and that's the beautiful thing. So I'm honored that you, that you had me on the show and it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Intersection is powered by Touchpoint Media Network, a podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Go to touchpoint.health for many other podcasts, including Datapoint, hosted by Greg Matthews, featuring trending topics as he explores the idea of the quadruple aim, enhancing patient experience, improving population health, improving provider experience, and reducing costs in the system. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health.